Welcome to the sermons and teachings from the Catalyst Fellowship with Ipai Michael. We hope the message you're about to listen to will edify you and cause you to experience exponential growth. And now, the message. Today's teaching is titled, Look at the Book. Alright, all of the teachings we've done before now was aimed to help you understand the posture of your heart, to help you position your mind towards the rest of this teaching, to help you, you know, grow in the world, set targets for your spirituality, understand the rigor, the labor that it would take for you to grow. And so today we're going to continue. And I've read a couple of texts to you. I'm going to read them to you again today just for emphasis. Open your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 1 from verse 23. Alright, the Bible says in Philippians 1 and 23, it says, For I am pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. It says, Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. Verse 25 says, And being confident of this, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith. It says that your rejoicing for me may be abundant in Jesus by my coming to you again. Who is speaking here? Paul. Who is he speaking to? Philip. Where is the church in Philip I located? Macedonia. When was it established? It was actually in the book of Acts, in one of the Apostle Paul's missionary journeys. Alright? So, he... I think it was Acts 15. The Bible tells us about the time when the Apostle Paul had a dream and a man was calling him to come to Macedonia. To come to Macedonia. And that was when the church started, when he visited Macedonia for the first time. These are important things you should know. All those information before you start reading your Bible. All the information before you start reading your Bible that you discard. They are important. Amen? Amen. Alright, so now the Apostle Paul is writing to them most likely from prison. And he says, I am hard-pressed between two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. And I told you that there are many things to learn from this text, one of which is the heart of their pastor. He says, I have a desire to depart and be with Christ. He says, that's far better. He says, nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. So he could go be with Christ, and he regarded that as better. But he also said, I could stay. And if I stay, I know that it's needful for you. It's needful for the church. He's talking about the church in Philippi. Remember that in this Bible study series, or how to interpret the Bible, I've been teaching you that you must first understand what it meant to them before you understand what it means to us. So understand it then and there before you understand it here and now. Amen? And so this was not speaking to us. He was speaking to them. And so he was saying about that church, he says he wants to stay with them because he knows that staying with them would be needful for them. We can take an example from them and a cue from them because of the relationship we have with that church. That church was an early, it was a young church. And if their pastor says to them that they are going to experience advancement because of his staying with them, we can come to a conclusion that by the partnership, of a ministry gift, a pastor, we can experience progress and join the faith. Praise Jesus. Amen. That's important. But the partnership of your pastor, you can experience progress. Progress. The Greek word for progress here is prokope. It means advancement. It means fordrance. This means that as a believer, you must anticipate growth. Do you understand what I said? You must what? Anticipate growth. If I've been under the tutelage of a pastor in a local church for a while, I must expect advancement. I must expect fraudulent. I must expect growth. What we see in this text is that the Apostle Paul had what we like to call a curriculum mindset. And what do we mean by a curriculum mindset? He believed that by staying with them. Now, staying with them not, was not just about abiding with them. Every time you saw the Apostle Paul with the people, what was he doing? He was teaching. 
Amen. So it meant that he believed that by his teaching ministry, these people would experience progress. This means that he felt that there were things that he needed to teach them that would cost them advancement. Praise Jesus. There are things he needed to, talk, to, to, to teach them that would cost them growth. And so the expected result of being in a local church under a pastor is what? Growth. Did you hear that? The expected result of being in a local church under a pastor is what? Growth. It's growth. So anticipate progress. Anticipate growth. Have targets for your spirituality. Have targets for your growth. And we've said that growth in the word, rather, we've said that growth in God is growth in the word. Amen. Growth in God is what? Is growth in the word. The prayer that the Apostle Paul prays for the early church is one that is centered on spiritual growth. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 15, the Bible says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So he has heard about their faith and he has heard about their love. The most important thing for him to pray for them for is what? Is that they grow. He says, we are remembering you in our prayers that the God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the, Father, the Lord God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, may give you what? The spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And I've said this time and again that in, in previous verses he already said that what? That they received the spirit after they heard the word of truth. The gospel of their salvation. It says, in whom after you heard, you were sealed with the Holy Ghost of promise. Meaning that they had the spirit already in them. So what he was talking about here was not a new spirit. Praise God. What did he mean? He meant that they will receive wisdom and revelation by the spirit. Are you getting what I'm saying? Wisdom and revelation by the spirit. And for more clarity, verse 18, he then says, Having the eyes of your understanding enlightened. The word here means flooded with light. Flooded with light. That their eyes will be flooded with light. That they may know. Light is a metaphor for knowledge. Amen. Amen. He says having the eyes of the understanding. Flooded with light. That they may know. The word know there is a word for knowledge. That is different from the other words that you may know. Now, one of the things you will learn in this series is that the Greek word has more, the Greek language has more words than the English language. Amen. And so when you see a word, for example, like love in the English, in the Greek, there will be words like filio, agape, amen, eros, which all refer to different types of love. Agape love is the love of God. Filio is friend, friendship type of love. That's where you get the word Philadelphia from. Amen. Amen. The same thing happens in knowledge. In the English, we just say knowledge. But in the Greek, we have gnosis, which means to know. We have epignosis, which is epi and gnosis, which signifies accurate or higher knowledge. But we also have edo, E-I-D-O. And edo, is used to describe a type of knowledge that has to do with light. Let me give you an analogy that helps you understand Edo. If I've been in this room since 9 a.m. this morning and I've been standing, but I really need to sit because I'm, I'm extremely tired, I'm exhausted, and all the lights are off, but there's a chair right beside me. But because the lights are off, I can't tell that there's a chair beside me and I can't be effective to use the chair to sit down. Are you getting what I'm saying? There's a chair beside me. It's just right there. But the problem is that I don't know. Let me ask you this question. Is the chair truly there? Yes, sir. It is. The only difference is that there's no light. Edo is that moment when the light comes on. And so I'm able to appropriate all that is available to me. That's Edo. Amen. And so the Apostle Paul is praying that the believer would receive Edo. That his eyes will be flooded with light. 
that he may know what is the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. So listen, the believer has a great inheritance. The believer has a rich inheritance. But guess what? It would not matter what you have if you don't know that you have it. Did you hear what I said? It would not matter what you have if you don't know that you have it. And that's why the apostles prayer for the church is that you grow. And now you know that the growth is praying for is growth in knowledge. Growth in knowledge. And guess what? I have come to realize that he prayed this prayer in almost all his epistles. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 9, the Bible says, And so, from the day we heard of you, we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Did you see that? He's praying. This is Colossians. It sounds similar. Since we heard, we've not stopped praying for you. If you go to Colossians 2, it says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face. Verse 2, he says, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So, he wants them to know. 2 Peter 3, 18, the Bible says, but grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It says grow in grace. Grow in grace. This would easily help you come to a conclusion that growth is very important. I know all too well that struggle of seeking for spiritual growth but being in a loop of seeking for something higher and not being able to substantiate what you have or what you know. Seeking for deeper things, seeking for deeper mysteries because you want to grow. But your life will change the moment you know that growth in God is growth in the Word. Growth in God is what? Is growth in the Word. Someone asked me a question in the last question and answer. He says, sir, what are planes and what are dimensions? I say, I don't know the words you use for them. What I can tell you about is that there are, certain, there are certain levels of mastery you can come to as a result of usage and as a result of knowledge. Amen? Amen. If you call that a dimension, I don't know. But what I know it as is mastery. Are you getting what I'm saying? Yes. It's mastery. Because the more you know, the moment the believer begins to know that the Bible says that Christ is seated in heavenly, that, that, that Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father in heavenly places. And that same part did not say only Christ is seated. It also says that we are seated in Christ Jesus in heavenly places. Amen. Your mindset begins to change. Because the moment you know that Jesus being seated in heavenly places signifies two things. Number one, rest. Number two, his position in sitting, the Bible says, is that he's seated at the right hand. And this does not necessarily mean that he's sitting on his stool. It's a metaphor for authority. And the Bible says he's seated far above principalities and powers and rulers of this world and dominion and power. Then now that same Bible says that we are seated in heavenly places in Christ. You begin to know that the theology for the authority of Jesus becomes the theology for your authority. Why? The Bible clearly says you are seated in Christ Jesus. Meaning that if Jesus is far above principalities and dominions and authority, I am also far above principalities. That's what knowledge does to the believer. So now, your conversations will change because you know better. Not like the sons of Sceva who faced the devil, a demon, and the demon said, Peter, I know, Jesus, I know, but who are you? No, it's a different... A lot of you think that when you face the devil, it will say, who are you? No, that's not true. Because for the fact that you are seated in every place in Christ, what, you are, what, what the Bible is teaching you is that you are in the name. 
and the name is not the mention of the name, the name is the authority. So when he says, Peter, I know, Jesus, I know, he will say, Sarah, I know, he will say, Simi, I know, he will say, Alex, I know, he will say, Jane, I know. That's what knowledge brings to you. Because now you understand that you have the believer's authority as a result of what? The Bible says that you have a rich inheritance, that there's immeasurable power, same power that was wrought in Christ. It says that same power is wrought towards you. And that you have that power. That's what scripture teaches. The moment you grow in knowledge, you will stop entering a cycle of being spiritually up and later falling because then you would understand that the Bible says that there now is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, those who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For the law of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Amen? Amen. So condemnation is not going to hold you down. The difference is knowledge. And so I've told you this analogy time and time again of a man who went on a boat cruise. And the boat cruise was really expensive. Really expensive. He didn't know how he was going to afford it. So what did he do? He sold everything he had and then decided to go on this boat cruise. So he paid for the ticket, but he had nothing left, but he was just excited. At least I got to pay for the boat cruise. And so the day of the cruise came and he was able to get in because he had the ticket. But now he's in and he's enjoying himself, getting the reward of what he paid for. But finally, at last, he was hungry. But he had no money because he had sold everything he had. He had used all his money to pay for that boat cruise. And so now the first day goes by, he can't eat anything. The second day goes by, he still can't eat anything because he doesn't have any money anymore. He used all he had to pay for that boat cruise. By the third day, there was nothing to do anymore. He just decided, you know what? At this point, did I die? Or the QB. So he's like, you know what? I'm just going to go into one of the food stores. And I'm just going to eat. I'm going to ask, eat to my fill. And then in the end, whatever has to happen will happen. Either I wash plates, at least I'm full. So I will not die from washing plates, but if I don't eat, I will die. So it looked like a smarter decision. So he walked into one of the restaurants and then he took food. Oh my God. He ate. He's like, you know what? If this is the last, so be it. <laughs> Lord, unto you, my soul. He ate to his feel. He, you know, you know that kind of eating where you're like, <laughs> I will eat like I can't. And you've been hungry for a day and a half. He ate to his feel. And then he was about to leave. So he started walking out of the door. And nobody stopped him. I moved a little faster. Nobody stopped him. Then he got out of the door. And he looked back, like, what's going on? So, out of the goodness of his heart, he ran to the lady and was like, Lady, I, I ate a whole lot, but you guys didn't stop me. And the lady's like, oh, sir, sorry about that. She didn't even have to say sorry. She was like, oh, sir, when you paid for the boat cruise, you paid for meal inclusive. And the guy is like, so, I've suffered all this while, whereas I could have eaten. And listen, that picture and that analogy is what I'm telling you about the word of God. There's a lot for you, but it would not matter that you have it if you don't know you have it. Praise Jesus. It would not matter. And that's why knowledge is important. Growth in God is growth in the word. What did I say? Growth in God is growth in the word. Growth in God is growth in the word. Another text I read to you, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 2, 15, the Bible says, Study to show yourself approved, a workman that needed not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. The word study there is the Greek word spudazo, S-P-O-U-D-A-Z-O or Z-O. And the word doesn't just mean to read, it actually means to be diligent. So, Reading and more. It means everything in your power. It means to be diligent. So the Bible is saying, be diligent to show yourself approved. 
It says a workman. So, first of all, the fact that it says be diligent to show yourself approved before God means that there's a standard in God. Praise the Lord. It means there's a standard in God. We can't do things anyhow in God. If we're going to work with God, we must do according to His standard. So when it comes to also studying, there's a standard in God. It's a study to show yourself approved in workman. The word workman there means a laborer. Interpreting the Bible is something that would require diligence. If you study and understand the Bible, you have to be diligent to give proper exegetical explanations to labor. You must be a workman in the word. When people hear you speak, let them discern labor. Amen. When they hear you pray, let them discern labor. When I go to a new place, I don't try hard. But the only good news or mistake, regardless of the point of view that you can do, is when you, if you give me the mic, I will show you that I've been preparing for this all my life. You will descend labor. And it's not me trying to... Listen, you know, my pastor said something like, he said, he said, you have been practicing. He said, one day, they just told ah, that boy, come and lead prayer. <laughs> when he was done, you will know that he has been praying for all his life. Let's descend labor. From the things you say. Listen, there are some people that when you hear them speak, you know the act. You they read Bible. And there are some people that when you hear them speak, you don't even say. Do you know that when you study the Bible a lot, your vocabulary actually changes in a way. When you describe the things of God, you say them almost in the way that is said in scriptures. Do you understand what I'm saying? When you study the word a lot, it changes just your, your, the manner at which you, you speak about things. When you use words like gratification of the flesh, it's actually biblical term. It's not, I mean, it's English, but it's actually in the Bible we see gratification used closely with flesh. Do you understand what I'm saying? Or sinful desire. Just those words that are consistent with stuff. Let's discern labor when we hear you speak. Let's know how this guy has studied. You know, one of the best, not, let me not say best, but one of the fun parts of evangelism for us here. In Canada, is when we talk to people and we know, ah, you, you, they study you. It's easier to, to convince them because they are workmen. Do you understand what I'm saying? They are workmen. They, ah, ah. If you show them, they will say, ah, okay, okay, ah, I see, I see. <laughs> Be a laborer in your word. Let, let's discern it in your words. Be a laborer. It takes, listen, it's going to take time, it's going to take effort to rightly divide the word of God. And it says, rightly divide, it means to cut straight. It means to cut straight. There's a right way to divide the word of God. And if there's a right way, it means there's a wrong way. Are you with me? Yes, sir. If there's a right way to approach the word of God, it means there's a wrong way. Listen, this cannot be overemphasized in an age where everyone is looking for their own private interpretation and a method to satisfy their feelings. We must prioritize cutting straight the word of God, rightly dividing the word of God. Because if you cannot today, there will be problems. While we are here, some people are creating a new church with a new Bible, with a new creed, and they pray to God who is a we, not he, interpreting texts that Jesus used to say that Jesus was pro. I can't even mention it in the same line with Jesus. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? You must be studious. You must. Hallelujah. So it's going to take time and effort. And I've told you that this text is one of the things that shows us what the job of hermeneutics is. The job of interpretation. It is to cut straight. We must learn to cut straight. We must learn to cut straight. We must learn to rightly interpret. And last week, I gave you two tasks. In Bible interpretation, what did I say the first one is? And what is exegesis? The goal of exegesis is to reconstruct the intention of the author using the geography, the text, the culture, the history, and every available information. Your goal is to discover what the author intended. The opposite of exegesis is what? Exegesis, right? That is written into the text with preconceived notions. Alright, so what is the second task of hermeneutics? 
Second tax of Bible interpretation is what? Hermeneutics. And what does hermeneutics mean? In a narrower sense, relevance of the text, right? So, what does that mean in plain English? What it means to us today, right? So, the goal of exegesis is to discover what it means to them in the then and there. And the goal of hermeneutics is to understand what it means to us in the here and now, right? A believer who does hermeneutics before exegesis is he following a right approach to Bible study? Why? There was an intent one. Why else? The goal is because specific people wrote to specific audience and so to interpret whatever they were writing, you must understand the intention of the writer and the people he was writing to. And so it will be wrong if you assume that he was writing to you. Your first job is to discover what he intended to communicate to them before you discover how it applies to you. So the first task is exegesis, the second task is hermeneutics. And we are using hermeneutics in a narrower sense because the whole broad of the whole field of studying the Bible is termed hermeneutics ideally, but it's just a better way to um, what's the word to explain the second task. Alright, so today I'm going to speak about a few school of thoughts when it comes to interpreting the Bible or approaches that people have used, we're going to see which is correct. Remember, if there's a right way to divide the Bible, there's also a wrong way. Amen? Mm -hmm. And so we want to discuss a few methods that people might use and discover if they are correct or they are not. Alright, so the first approach we want to discuss, there are many, but we'll discuss just a few, is what we call the moral interpretation of the Bible. What's the moral interpretation of the Bible? This refers to... Now, many times people hinge what they are doing on Romans chapter 15 verse 4. The Bible says in Romans 15 4, it says, For whatsoever things were written before, were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of Scripture might have hope. But even their interpretation of this text is wrong. Who wants to tell me why? How do you know it in context? How are you sure you know it in context? It was written, first of all, for their learning and comfort. So, as, as 21st century readers, you can't follow a moral approach to say that the things were written for your learning and comfort. Listen, even though it's true that it's written for your learning and comfort, your first job is to see that when the Bible says whatsoever things were written before time were written for our learning, the our there is not the 21st century here. He was actually talking about people in his own time. Amen. Amen. The only reason why we can understand it for our learning today is because we've done the there and then, amen, amen, to see who he was talking to before we now bring it to the here and now because we can relate to the audience. And what is our relation to the audience? We are a church of Christ. We are believers. Does that make sense? This is how to do Bible interpretation. This is how to do Bible. So we don't jump to say our learning as though it was us he was talking to. No, he wasn't talking to us. He was talking to people in the specific time that we were with him. But the only reason why it applies to us is because we've understood that. And when you are doing that relation, there's a bridge between what it meant to them and what it means to us. There are rules that apply in that bridge. There must be strong similarities before you can apply it. Amen. Is this clear to everybody? So, let's deal with the moral interpretation. So, people with this thought, rather, their approach to Bible study is that they want to learn morally from every part of Scripture. They believe there is a moral lesson in every part of Scripture. I'll give you an example. If you were to give a person the feeding of the 5,000, and they were trying to interpret the feeding of the 5,000, they would totally ignore the supernatural activity that happened there, and rather than the miracle of multiplying food, they would interpret it as a non-supernatural miracle of sharing, meaning the moral lesson there is that you should share with people. Are you getting what I'm saying? 
Can you relate to what I'm saying? Have you ever approached any text like that before? You just saw a text and you are taking moral lesson from it. Ah, okay, this story is trying to teach us now that you should do this or do that. Amen. Or when reading about Moses in Exodus, you think the text is teaching you about good morals to stand up for your people until you realize that Moses actually murdered someone they are running away. So which morals would you ignore and which morals would you pick? Or maybe David was your role model that you realized that he slept with another person's wife. So which morals do you take and which morals did you, will you ignore? If you follow this approach, you would misinterpret scriptures. Amen. The funny thing is that we've done it in different ways. That's why I'm giving examples. Let me give you another example. If people in this school of thought see a text, like when Jesus you know, rose that little girl, he went to her and he said, Talitha Kumi, right? And what does Talitha Kumi mean? Little girl, I say to you, get up. Or little girl, rise up. From Mark chapter 5 verse 41, right? Now, what moral interpretation people would do from this is that they would do a women's conference and call it Talitha Kumi, meaning little girl, rise up. Are you seeing what I'm saying? It sounds deep. Like, little girl, rise up. It sounds deep. The moral is that every little dead girl can rise up. But that's not what the writer intended. And that would have been a wrong interpretation of the text. Amen? Amen. Another thing people in this school of thought would do is that they will use the Bible to teach you economics, econometrics. <laughs> <laughs> Have you heard people say those things before? Teach you biology, you know, business principles. Anyways, the end goal is that it is wrong. Or you see the story of the brazen serpent, and rather than taking the information that the brazen serpent is trying to give you, which is that salvation is going to come not by your work, but by sight. The same way the healing from the snake poison came by looking at a brazen serpent, they will say, the solution to your problems may look hard, but if you can focus, you can focus, healing will come. Are you seeing the problem with the interpretation? It's a problem. And it's wrong. As good Bible students, is this approach to Bible interpretation right or wrong? It's wrong. Number two, allegorical interpretation or allegorical approach. To Bible interpretation. This is another approach to but the spelling is A double L E G O R I C A L allegorical. It's from the word allegory. Alright? Now, this is another approach, and the, alleg the allegorical approach interprets the Bible as always having a second level of meaning beyond the actual people, places, or events mentioned. I'll say that again. The allegorical interpretation always interprets the Bible as having a second level of meaning beyond the actual people, places, and events mentioned. They always believe that there's a hidden spiritual meaning to every text of scripture. Amen. You know, <laughs> I saw a video, my wife sent me a video yesterday of a lady that said that in the beginning was the word and she did one plus or minus equals two she went to the hebrew word mixed one thing and one thing and then in the end she came up with the conclusion that that text actually has a hidden meaning that says that jesus is the son of god and by his crowns and his thorns he will be saved ah but that, the thing is, is convincing i'm not even joking like but the way she did that equal to she said, you know, so when you look at the word, all the words there in the Hebrew, it's bara. Another word for bara is crown, and this is this. In the end, she shall came to a proclamation of the gospel from in the beginning was the word. So she said, isn't it mind-blowing that the first words the Bible say declare the salvation plan? Ha! Huh. Now listen, I don't know if it's true or not, but all I know is that that's not the right approach to Bible study. Amen? Mm -hmm. There doesn't have to be always a deeper 
spiritual meaning to every line of the text. Amen. Because in the end, you can come up with what the writers never intended in the first place. Amen. So it's safer not to know and be in where they give us information than to seek beyond the information we have and discover error. Are you getting what I'm teaching you? Many times in this school of thought, what the original writer tries to say is totally ignored and the readers try to find a hidden deeper meaning to the text. So like the name implies, they're looking for allegories. They're looking for hidden pictures. And this goes hand in hand with typology or symbolism, which I'll explain later. I'll explain, I'll teach you about types and shadows later in the teaching. But there are guidelines that will help us understand. Listen, the Bible has shadows. But is everything in the Bible a shadow? No. The Bible has types. The Bible has symbolism. But is everything in the Bible a symbol? No. In Matthew chapter 12 and verse 38, the Bible says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And no sign will be given to it, except the sign of the prophet Jonah. It says, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Clearly, Jesus is saying that the experience of Jonah was a sign. Amen? This is clear symbolism. Matthew 12 verse 38. This is what? Clear symbolism why Jesus said it's a symbol. Jesus said it is a symbol and that's why we take it as a symbol. Jesus said the fact that Jonah was dead in the belly of the fish three days is a sign for you to understand that God was telling the story that for salvation to come, the Savior will be dead in the belly of the fish three days because Jonah being in the belly of the, of the, of the whale for three days was what caused Nineveh to be saved because after that he turned his back and he went to preach to Nineveh. He's saying that God was telling a story through that to help you know that Jesus will be there three days and salvation will come to men. The reason why we believe that is a symbol is because Jesus taught it. Does that now mean that the stone that Goliath, that David spawned at Goliath is Jesus? No, man. No, sir. Or the stone is Peter because he says that was a rock. No, sir. No, man. That was a rock is a different thing. The stone is stone. Or oh, because this is a rock all the ages. So that is when David spirit spawn. Then the rock. <laughs> Please. And Goliath is not your problem. Neither is Goliath your enemy. Every Goliath in my life fall down flat. Goliath is not your enemy. Amen. Amen. So what we're trying to say, I'm going to teach you a lot about this later, but what we're trying to say is everything is not a symbol. Everything is not a symbol. Are you getting what I'm saying? Yes, sir. Try not to look for hidden meaning in every single thing. Because you misinterpret the Bible. Amen? Amen. So when we teach about types and shadows and parables, I've explained this. But what is important to see is that if the writer never intended to hide meaning, and God has God never intended to hide meaning, seek no other meaning. Seek no other sense of the text. There has to be a way we draw a line between what is a shadow and what is a type and what is not. Amen? We will learn those principles as we go on. Number three, we have the literal approach or the literal interpretation. Are you learning something? Yes, sir. What is the literal interpretation? This approach interprets the text according to its plain or literal meaning. According to grammatical construction, historical context, and the intention of the author. It interprets the text according to its plain or literal meaning, according to grammatical construction, historical context, and the intention of the author. The literal meaning is held in correspondence to the intention of the author. That's what this school of thought believes. In this school of thought, nothing is taken as an allegory unless it's clearly stated as an allegory. So of the three, which is the safest to be? Literal. Seek no sense of the text. 
except what is clearly stated and unless the Bible also tells you that you should seek another meaning and stick to the meaning you can derive from direct study. There are other methods I will mention. I don't have time to explain. There's mystical or spiritual interpretation. There's liberal interpretation. You can go research them for yourself. But it's important to know that you should stick to the literal. So let's understand the nature of the Bible. So let's talk about the Old Testament. Right? In the Old Testament, we have the first five books of Moses. I'm going to give you a general division, logical division, based on my own like thought and like how I've seen other authors you know, describe it. So we have the first five books of Moses. This contains in narrative form. So it, it contains the narrative form of the creation story to the second giving of the law of Moses. The books under there we have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And this is usually called the Pentateuch. So when you hear anybody say Pentateuch, it's talking about the first five books of Moses. First five books of Moses, it contains the narrative form of the creation till the second giving of the law of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And it's popularly called what? Pentateuch. Alright? Then we have some books that contain historical narrative. What did I call them? Historical narrative. They contain historical narrative. And what, is, what you have in them is these particular books, they tell the story of Israel from the entry into the promised land through Babylonian captivity and the period of Persian rule. I'll say that again. We have certain books that contain historical narratives. They tell the story of Israel from the entry into the promised land through the Babylonian captivity and the period of Persian rule. So I'm just giving you a logical division. Alright? The books that are under here, we see Joshua. Remember, Joshua led them into the promised land. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st Samuel, 2nd Samuel, 1st Kings, 2nd Kings, 1st Chronicles, 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. I'll say that again. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st Samuel and 2nd, 1st Kings and 2nd, 1st Chronicles and 2nd, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Now, Daniel should be here, but I added Daniel somewhere else. So, when you're reading the Bible, it helps you to know what is going on. Amen. First five books, you already have a sense of what is happening. What did I say is happening there? From creation to what? The second giving of the law. That's why many times when it says beginning from the law, it's actually talking about beginning from these first five books. Amen. Amen. Then you have Israel's history. It talks about from when they entered into the promised land to when they went into exile. And that's covered all through Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. Now, Daniel should be here, but I put Daniel with books that contain Israel's wisdom. So there are certain books that contain Israel's wisdom and reflection of life. They contain what? Israel's what? Wisdom and reflection of life. And don't forget, reflection of life and how it should be lived under God is always important. The way they should, the way man should live under God, they reflect. And one of the things I'll teach you is that usually the, the I'll teach you this when I'm teaching about narrative, but the, the, the hero of all their stories is always God. The hero of the narrative of Israel's history is God. The centerpiece of the wisdom is how to live effectively under God. Amen. So what books are classified or categorized under books of wisdom here? Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Songs of Solomon, Daniel, and Lamentations. Sorry. Okay, I think I missed something. I missed something. Daniel is not here. Lamentations is not here. Take Daniel and Lamentations off here. They will be under prophets. Every other book falls under prophets now. Ma down to Malachi. Jeremiah, Isaiah. Go and read your Bible and check the rest and put it under. <laughs> under there. Check your Bible content. Any other book, put it under there. I put Daniel here because Daniel has prophetic 
insight into what's going to happen at the ends of time. That's why Daniel is here and Lamentations as well. Alright, does that make sense to everybody? So what did I just do now? I just gave you a breakdown of how to approach the Old Testament, right? Just how to think about the Old Testament. The problem is that you probably don't understand it if nobody ever gives you this breakdown. Do you understand what I'm saying? So, I'm just trying to help you see how to think through the Old Testament. How about the New Testament? That one is pretty easy, right? The four Gospels, they're called Synoptic Gospels. Why are they called Synoptic Gospels? Because they make up a synopsis. That means different stories from different perspectives. Sorry, the same story from different perspectives, making a whole story. Same story, different perspective to give you a broad picture of the story. Synoptic Gospels. Clear? Are you alright, Tim? So we have the Gospels. Some people add Acts of the Apostles, but I don't. I put the Acts of the Apostles as standalone because it documents the movement of the early church. It's also an account, but it gives us information about the early church and the activities of the apostles. And then we have epistles. Now, epistles are not just letters, they are teachings as well. Some are letters written to people, but some are teachings. So, epistles are teachings of the apostles. You know what? Everybody, open your Bible to the first page. That's the content. Get a pen. Now mark Genesis to Deuteronomy, put the square brackets between Genesis and Deuteronomy. What is that section called? Pentateuch, they are the five books of who? Moses. From Joshua to Esther, what is going on there? History of who? From when to when? From promised land through exile. And through the Persian rule. Now, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Songs of Solomon. What are those? Reflection of life with regards to who? Living under who? Under God. Now, Isaiah to Malachi. That's what? The prophets. And why is Daniel there? And Lamentations. Because what? They might not necessarily be called prophets, but they contain prophetic information. Does that make sense? They contain prophetic information. So, just a heads up, this was not the... What we have here is not the actual arrangement of the Hebrew Bible. It was rearranged this way to give you an understanding of the story. Does it make sense now, everybody? Now, Matthew, Mark, Luke... And John, what are they? Synoptic Gospels, right? Many people think that John is an epistle because John sort of does a bit of teaching, but then it's fine to add it as part of the Synoptic Gospels. Then Acts is what? No, 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 Acts is not an epistle per se, it's also a documentation, but of the early church and the activities of the apostles after the death of Christ. Alright? Now, Romans to Jude, what are those? Epistles. Not letters, because I told you some epistles are not letters. They are epistles. What are epistles? They are teachings of the apostles. And some were letters, and some are not letters. Then Revelations. Revelations is, <laughs> I call it apocalyptic literature, but that's for that's the genre. Just call Revelations a book on end times. <laughs> Just call Revelations a book on end times. Alright, now let's check how far we understand. Does this help you get a logical overview of the Bible? No? Why is Hebrews an epistle? Because it's also doing a teaching on doctrinal matters and things they received from Christ. So epistles are teachings. So, the best approach to, buy, to, to studying the Bible is to understand the nature of the Bible. Does this make sense? The best way to understand the Bible is to know how to approach it. And if you know how to approach it, the way to know how to approach it is to understand its nature. If you understand what each person is writing about, you'll be able to understand it. Amen. Listen and pay attention to this. The Bible is a divine book, yes. 
but it's also a literary material. Do you know what that means? It means that even though the Bible is a divine book, it was communicated with normal human language, which makes it make use of the basic things you learned in literature. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Things like figures of speech. So, what I mean by the Bible being a literary material, what is a literary material? A literary material is anything either published on or unpublished, including a novel, a book, an article, a poem, a screenplay, anything communicated effectively with English language or with any language. So, what are we trying to say? Even though the Bible is a divine book, it was communicated in a language which makes it subject to the laws that guide that language. Now, this will help you very well. Now, pay attention here, everybody. Pay attention here. It's more important to listen and understand this than even to just write. You can write, but just make sure that you're listening. When you're approaching it, understand that it contains different genres. So, the, the, the idea is that the writers wrote in different ways. And so they must be read with respect to their journals. Do you understand what I'm saying? They must be read with respect to that. In the Bible, we have, number one, laws and statutes. Number two, we have covenants. Right? Number three, we have prophetic oracles. Number four, we have prayers. Number five, we have songs of praises and thanksgiving and lamentation. What I'm giving you now are genres you can find in the Bible. Number six, there are wisdom sayings. As I'm saying it, is it making sense to you that, okay, I think I, I know what can be a thanksgiving song now, a praise song or a lamentation, right? Or prayer. Number seven, we have genealogies. Number eight, we have parables and fables. Number nine, we have poetic imagery. So when I say poetic imagery, I mean... Metaphors, similes, symbolism, you know. And then we have apocalyptic visions and symbols. The end goal of this is not in big English. The end goal of this is to help you understand that the Bible has different genres. So the idea is that the way that you will read a song of praise and thanksgiving is different from the way you would read a letter or a teaching, even though I didn't mention that as one of the journals here, I'll, pro I'll probably adjust and give you a, a full-on, you know, um, list of journals later. But it's different from the way you read a teaching, right? The way you would read a psalm, which is a song, amen, is different from the way you would read in the gospel, like a, a synoptic gospel, a part of the synoptic gospel. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's different. And the way you would read a narrative in the Old Testament is different from how you read prophetic oracles. So you must learn to approach them differently. So we must adapt our reading to accommodate the different writing styles that we see in the Bible. The way you read a parable is different from the way you read a teaching. Do you get what I'm saying? And that's important to know. I'm going to round up here. Have you learned something this evening? Alright, glory to God!